you have access to a Bible, I invite you to turn to the Gospel according to Mark. We're in chapter 14, uh, today in verse 66. How many verses are there in Mark chapter 14? We're actually going to finish it today. So if you have access to a Bible, uh, I invite you to turn here. Mark 14, verse 66. Uh, by way of introduction, just to keep us all on the same page as to where we are now in the story of Jesus. This is the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been taken uh, before the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, for trial. And he's been condemned on the charge of blasphemy. That's what we talked about last week. But during this whole thing... Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, has stayed near Jesus and has followed him, first at a distance and then found his way into the courtyard uh, where Jesus was being tried before the Jewish leadership. And now we pick up the story of Peter in verse 66. For those who are able to do this, I invite you to stand for the reading of the Gospel this morning. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 66, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she stared at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I do not know or understand what you're talking about. And he went out into the forecourt. Then the cock crowed, and the servant girl, on seeing him, began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. Then after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to curse, and he swore an oath, I do not know this man you're talking about. At that moment, the cock crowed for the second time. Then Peter remembered that Jesus had said to him, Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I invite you to be seated. The title of the sermon this morning is Rebelling for All the, all the Right... I, I changed it all over the place. So what's in the bulletin is different than what I'm going to say, and what I'm going to say is different than what's in my notes. So... I think I'm calling it rebelling for all the right reasons. Rebelling for all the right reasons. And what we're going to wrestle with today is a significant issue in the gospel according to Mark. Because if Mark is about anything, it's about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus over the long haul. The central story of the gospel according to Mark is Jesus' story of the sower. It's a story of a farmer who went out and sowed seed. And that seed fell on many different kinds of soil. Some of the seed fell on path, but before it could take any root, birds ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and it grew up quickly, but it had no root. And so, when the weather got rough, those, and the sun came up, those plants withered and died. Other plants fell among thorny soil, and they grew up, but they were choked out by the thorns, and they couldn't come to produce a crop. And then other seed landed on good soil. Now, Jesus tells lots of those kinds of stories in most of the Gospels, what are called parables. But in the Gospel according to Mark, there are very few. And that one that I just shared is one of the most important. And it's the one that the disciples didn't understand at all, nor the crowds. And so they had to ask Jesus, what does this mean? And he implied that the different soils are, represent different people who hear the gospel. And when they hear the good news, there are some that the seed falls on them like seed on the path, and before it can take any root, it's just taken away. Others grow up initially, and they look like they might survive to, to give a crop. But either the worries of the world or the weather and circumstances or the heat of the sun causes them to wither and before they can produce a crop, they're gone. And then there are other folks who when the gospel comes on them, they are good soil and it produces a crop. And the question of the gospel of Mark up until this point has been, 
Who's going to be good soil? What does it take to be good soil? How does a person survive over the long haul to produce a a crop? And to this point in the Gospel, according to Mark, we have not seen any good soil. People have, have come to follow Jesus. They've begun to show early signs of growth. But when things get tough, they continue to wither. A classic example is the example of Judas. Just on this night, he betrayed Jesus and turned over his location to the Jewish authorities so he could be arrested out of sight of the, of the crowds. So where is this good soil to be and what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, that's been the question. And we don't have a lot of examples. We assume that the, the, the place we can look to for discipleship is going to be in the disciples themselves. I mean, these 12 guys are following Jesus. They've been witness to most everything that's happened for Him. Certainly, we're going to find good soil there. And first among the apostles is Peter. Peter is one of the first called by Jesus. Peter has stood out as a leader among these disciples. When Jesus went away to pray and nobody could find him, it was was Peter who took the lead to find Jesus. When the disciples are thinking things, it's more often than not Peter who speaks up and tells Jesus what they're speaking about, sometimes getting criticized by Jesus. It's Peter who has the significant distinction of being called Satan by Jesus. That can't be something easy to live down. And when Jesus addresses the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they fail to stay awake and pray with Him while He's waiting to be arrested, He talks to all of them, but He addresses Peter by name. And it's Peter who speaks up just a little before that on that same night and says that he will never, never desert Jesus. So if we're going to look for good soil, we have to imagine that Peter is the right place to focus our attention. But in the passage we just read... Peter has demonstrated that he is not good soil. Maybe he's rocky soil, maybe he's thorny soil. But when the times got tough, Peter denies Jesus. And Jesus has already told us in the Gospel that if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. Tough, right? This is a Gospel about what it means to be a disciple. And the first lesson we learn is, it's apparently not easy. And so I've been thinking about Peter's betrayal, and I'm trying to think about what Mark wants us to understand about what it means to follow Jesus. Where did Peter go wrong? At what point did Peter fail to live into the kingdom in such a way that he found it reasonable and rational and defensible to deny that he knew Jesus three times in the same courtyard that Jesus was being tried in? What was it? Was it fear for his life, or was it something else? That's what we're going to talk about today. And as I try and set the stage so that we have what I hope to be a helpful way of looking into the story and trying to understand what it has to say to us, I've been thinking about the story of the Roman senator Marcus Brutus. Some of you may know the story. I think I've shared this before, but when I was in college, uh, my undergraduate degree was in English literature, and I focused especially on Renaissance and and Middle uh, English. And, of course, Shakespeare is prominent in the Renaissance period. And I did a lot of reading in Shakespeare. And so the first place I came across the story of Marcus Brutus was in fiction, was in the Shakespearean play Julius Caesar. Some of you maybe have seen the movies adapted from that or read it yourselves. But Marcus Brutus is a historical figure. And, it's you know, Shakespeare took some license. But historically what we do know is that Marcus Brutus and Julius Caesar were the best of friends. Their history went back a long way. But somehow... 
As Julius Caesar began to grow in popularity and the Roman people seemed to want to make him a king and a dictator over the Roman Empire, Marcus Brutus conspired with a whole bunch of other senators to murder Julius Caesar and to assassinate him. And so I was thinking about this moment where best friends could be led to kill one another. And for Marcus Brutus, the reason he felt justified in assassinating his best friend was because he believed in something that Julius Caesar had come to represent. He believed that the Roman Empire needed to be a republic. It needed to be a democracy. And Julius Caesar was slowly making it into a monarchy, into a dictatorship. And so Brutus betrayed his friend for a principle that he felt was greater than both of them. Why do I start there? It's because I think Peter did the same thing. I think Peter denied Jesus three times out of a desire to be faithful to Jesus. And I think it's there that we're going to find the lesson this morning. And so I want to say this word that I hope you'll remember. If you, if, if you can't remember anything I've already said and, and, and you're about to fall asleep uh, and not hear anything else I'm going to say, I hope you'll hear this. Faithfulness can be as rebellious as betrayal if it is misplaced. Faithfulness can be as rebellious as betrayal if it is mis misplaced. In fact, I'm convinced that Peter denied Jesus because he loved him. We'll see if you agree. As we consider this example of Peter as an example of the early walk of discipleship with Jesus, we're going to explore three, three points. The first is Peter's conviction, the second is Peter's rebellion, and the third is Peter's betrayal. Now, to get to Peter's conviction and what probably has motivated him to do what he's done, we have to go back a little bit in the story. So if you still have your Bibles open, if you want to look back just a few verses to Mark chapter 14, verse 26. We've read this before and preached on it before, but I'm going to read it again. Mark chapter 14, verse 26. This is after the, they have the Lord's Supper together, uh, the Jewish Passover Seder. And then we find these words. When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all become deserters, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though all become deserters, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this day, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said vehemently, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of them said the same. Now I want you to hear what was in Peter's heart there. Peter desired to be loyal to Jesus. But I think he misunderstood the loyalty that Jesus required. So Peter hears his master, his teacher, the one that he has spent the last at least three years with, and it might have been more than that. It's very hard to piece together the history. It could have been as many as seven years. But however long it was that Peter had walked with Jesus, he had invested his entire life. He had left his career. He had left his family. He had followed Jesus through thick and thin. They had been criticized by Jewish leaders. They had been marginalized. They had undergone oppression, in some cases attack, where Jesus had to slip through crowds because they wanted to kill him. The disciples were there for all of that. And and Peter had come to be so loyal to Jesus that he could not imagine a situation in which he would abandon his Lord. As far as Peter was concerned, he would stick with Jesus through thick and thin. But what he misses is that Jesus had just quoted the Scriptures. 
And Jesus' first loyalty, and we see this throughout the Gospel according to Mark, was not to Peter, or to the apostles, or to individuals in his life. Jesus' first loyalty was to God the Father. And in these final hours of Jesus' pre-resurrected life, he was allowing the scriptures of Israel to guide his every move and his every decision. Now, Peter was raised with that same set of assumptions. He was a Jewish man. What we call our Old Testament today, the first 39 books of the Bible that you're holding, that was the whole Bible for the people of Israel. They called it the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh. And Peter was raised to believe that God had spoken through those prophets and that the people of Israel were to submit to those prophets' teachings. He was raised with that too. Jesus lives that out even to the point that he's willing to die because God's word through Isaiah says he has to. Peter was raised to believe that too. But at some point in his life, he had shifted his loyalty from the prophets and from God to his friend, to Jesus. Now, I know Jesus is God, but Peter didn't know that yet. No matter what God or the scriptures had said, Peter could not imagine a legitimate reason to desert Jesus. And so Jesus quotes a scripture that says his disciples will desert desert him. But Peter cannot imagine deserting Jesus to whom he's loyal. So Peter decides to reject the scriptures in favor of his love for Jesus. Have you ever had that kind of moment in which your loyalties are divided? I'll give you an example. Should you first be truthful or should you first be kind? Which comes first? A member of my family often, uh, it's a family story now for us because it was very formative, but she felt that, not my living family, she's passed away now, so I don't think it's my mom or anything, but, but she felt that she could not lie, that God had had her commit to the truth above all things. And so the example she would often give is if somebody came to her and said, what do you think of my outfit? Now, isn't it, it's a different day, right? Have you asked anybody at church what they thought of your outfit? Apparently this happened in our church in Uxbridge back in the day. And if they asked her, what do you think of my outfit? And she didn't like it, she would tell us, I don't feel that you should say it's nice or it's pretty if you don't believe that. I think you should tell them the truth. Try to be kind. Say something like, it's not my taste. But you need to be honest. Now there are other people, and I've, I've pastored with these people, and I love these people, because these people are much easier to get along with. The people who will tell a little white lie to spare your feelings. Right? Now, the decision you make in that moment on whether or not to be frankly and completely honest or to try and conceal the honesty a bit around kindness and graciousness depends on what you put first, right? Is kindness first? I mean, the fruits of the Spirit, right? Fred is teaching on the fruits of the Spirit in his class. Is gentleness, goodness, kindness, right? Self-control, all that kind of thing. If you put that first, then of course we need to put a person's feelings before we put our truths, Right? But if you're focusing on Jesus' words, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, the truth will set you free, liars will be thrown into the pit of burning sulfur we find in Revelation, then you're going to put on... You, you see what I mean? Which do you do? And anybody who says, well, you do both, you're fooling yourself. There's no nice way to say, I hate what you're wearing. You can try, but it'll be a lie if it's nice enough. So, when we have these moments where we seem to have two competing loyalties and we don't know which one we should follow, we find ourselves in the space of Peter. He has a prophecy and he has his love of Jesus. 
And the prophecy says that he is going to desert the one he loves. But his value system tells him he cannot desert the one he loves. And so the question of the scriptures now is a secondary question for him. You've been there. Peter's conviction was that loyalty to Jesus as an individual was paramount. That nothing could trump it. And that, I think, is what led him to rebel against the word of God. So look at chapter 14, verse 27. I'm just going to read it again. Jesus said to them, You all will become deserters, for it is written. So Jesus doesn't say, You all will become deserters because you're all weak-willed, terrible people. You're all going to become deserters because you lack the courage to face your own deaths. You all will become deserters because you don't really love me as much as you said you did. You all will become deserters because you all are bad soil. And the seed fell on bad soil. And so the rocks and the thorns are going to wipe you out. That's why you're going to desert me. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, You will all become deserters, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But Peter did not obey that prophecy. Look at verse 54, just over a little bit more. This comes from last week's sermon. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards, warming himself at the fire. Peter had not deserted Jesus. He had refused to desert Jesus, and so he had rejected the prophets. During these final hours of Jesus' pre-resurrected life, he was following some very specific prophecies which were guiding all of his behavior in these last hours. We've talked about most of them in previous weeks. Psalm 110, we've referenced where Jesus was taking his cues on what it means to be son of David. The prophecies of Zechariah that talked about not one stone of the temple being left on top of another. Jesus was listening very poignantly to that. Isaiah 52 and 53 that says that the one who's going to save Israel is going to have to suffer and die for them. Jesus is following that. Daniel 7 we talked about last week where he calls himself son of man in fulfillment of the prophecies of Daniel. Jesus believes that it is his responsibility to live out faithfully the words of the prophets of Israel. And so here, when he foretells the desertion of his people, he references another prophecy. And this one is actually from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. I'm going to read it. It says this, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my associate, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now, out of loyalty to Jesus, Peter refused to submit to that prophecy. And all the disciples do initially. If they had lived into that prophecy and thought the way Jesus did, I have to submit to this, this is the word of God, then when Jesus was arrested that night in the garden, they would have simply left him. They would have simply scattered. But they didn't do that, especially Peter. We're later told in the other Gospels that it was Peter who picked up a sword and chopped off the ear of the high priest's servant. Peter fought back when Jesus was threatened. He disobeyed the prophets. And then after he does scatter, he doesn't leave. He stays with Jesus. He follows him all the way to the inner courts. Peter refused to submit to this prophecy. And his refusal to submit to the prophets of Israel... Mostly, he refused because it meant abandoning the one he loved. But that refusal to submit was rebellion. Have you seen that? 
Peter's refusal to desert Jesus was rebellion against the word of God. And it was that rebellion that led Peter into a space in which he would betray Jesus. Ironically, Peter's attempt to remain loyal by dismissing the prophets resulted in an act of deep and personal betrayal of the one that he claimed to love. Peter found himself denying Jesus three times because he refused to obey the word of God. This is another space in which we find ourselves, oftentimes, where we're forced to choose between loyalty to the law and loyalty to someone we love. I was reading an article this week by Dr. Vivian Diller in which she discussed the decisions of two mothers. Some of you remember this, these stories. They came out of 2011-2012, so it's a little ways back. But the mothers' names were Anita Saunders and Mindy Sig. And these are separate women living in separate parts of the country. But both of them turned their children in because they suspected they had committed murder. Some of you may remember the story. In both cases, the children were indicted because of the information that the mothers were able to hand over to authorities. And, of course, they were lauded as being good parents because their kids had committed murder. They had murdered young girls in both cases. But this article by Vivian Diller, she's trying to wrestle. I mean, most of us would agree that in a situation like that, a parent's responsibility is to turn over their children. But, But what about lesser things, like if our kids plagiarize? Or if they, if they steal food from, from a convenience store. What is a parent's responsibility then? And this is what Dr. Vivian Diller writes in her article. You see, I find some parents believe that unconditional love is their child's right and that you protect your child no matter what, at any age and under all circumstances. The role of the parent is viewed as a mediator between children and the outside world. Family loyalty comes before all else. Other parents believe in tough or tougher love. They view their their primary responsibility as teaching their children life lessons and the consequences for not following them. Most parents try striking a balance between nurturing and teaching, but these attitudes strongly influence family dynamics when it comes to reporting teenage criminal actions. So here we have a situation which is not unlike the one Peter faced, where we have to decide between our love of someone that we care deeply for and what God requires in His Word. And many parents choose their children over God. Peter, and this is ironic, I know, because Jesus is God, but Peter chooses his loyalty to Jesus over God. Which is weird, because Jesus is God. I understand the confusion. Peter's conviction was that loyalty to Jesus as an individual was paramount. And consequently, Peter rebelled against Jesus' loyalties. Because Jesus was not loyal to himself. He was loyal to God and to the Scriptures. Willing even to lay down his own life to see the Scriptures fulfilled. But Peter didn't much care for Jesus' loyalties. He cared only to be loyal to Jesus. It's a big idea, I know. But by trying to be loyal to Jesus, Peter betrayed Jesus' loyalties and in the end betrayed Jesus himself. And that's where we find ourselves in Mark fourteen sixty six, Peter's betrayal. Now, he, he denies knowing Jesus three times, which is a big deal, like I said earlier in the Gospel. We've heard the words, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. So this is no idle conversation Peter's having with these onlookers, but I'm only going to read again the last of his oaths. Verse 71. But he, Peter, began to curse, and he swore an oath. I don't know this man. 
that you are talking about. At that moment, the cock crowed for the second time, and then Peter remembered that Jesus had said to him, before the cock crows twice, you'll deny me three times. I think what was happening for Peter is that he had become so consumed with not deserting Jesus that three times he denied knowing him in order not to desert him. Because the moment he confessed that he knew who Jesus was, one of two things would happen. Either he would be ushered out of that area and have to desert Jesus, or maybe he would be arrested, though I think that that is less likely. So Peter is so insistent that he will not fulfill the prophecy that he will desert Jesus, that he is willing to deny his knowledge of Jesus before people three times, simply to be true to his word that he wouldn't desert. We know that space too. How many betrayals, how many sins do we sometimes justify to keep one item of faithfulness that we believe is more important than all the rest? How many of us say things like, this was for the greater good? Or I did it for love? I've shared some before about my affinity for for sports. And when I was young, I played soccer and basketball primarily. And our teams did better in soccer, but I liked basketball better. And I used to joke around, and I think I've shared this quite a long time ago. I used to joke around that I was sure of my salvation everywhere except on the basketball court. On the basketball court, I wasn't really sure. If I died there, I would, I would be wondering what was going to happen to me. And the reason for that was that, that I'm a very competitive person, and, and competition drove me, and so my primary desire on the basketball court was to win. And that became a dominant force. And this really hit home for me on how I had barely grown in this area. I grew by simply retreat because I just stopped playing. And that makes me feel like I've matured. But apparently I haven't because I met a guy that I used to play basketball with. This was just a couple of years ago. And, and he was not a Christian at the time. And I loved playing against people who weren't Christians because it gave me every good reason to vilify them, right? And so he wasn't a Christian then. He was kind of a, 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 he had a temper on him and he would hurt you if you embarrassed him. And I just hated him. You know, I'd play against this guy and I just hated him, everything about him. And then I found out that he had become a believer, that he was tending a church and had been the district representative from that church to the district assembly. And here I am at district assembly and there's this guy who I still hate apparently because when I looked at him, I got mad. (laughs) And I thought, what are you doing here? And he told me the story of how he had come to Jesus and, and uh, how, how he was growing in faith and how he was repentant of the life he had lived before. And I realized that day how little like Jesus I was because I was upset that he had changed because I liked not liking him. That was basketball. He was my foe. He was my enemy. He hurt me, embarrassed me. I, I used to get myself motivated just to embarrass him back. And here he is, a brother in Christ. But you see, for me, Christ-likeness and winning oftentimes could not go together. And I had to decide which one I valued more. And as a young person, I always seemed to value winning more. I still cannot believe to this day the things I would justify doing just to win. Some of them I tell because it's funny stories, but most of the time, uh, they're just embarrassing. This is the space in which Peter finds himself. 
He has put loyalty to Jesus and not deserting him at such a high level that he is willing to sin in any other way necessary in order to be true to this. And so on that night, he denies Jesus three times. Peter, of course, may have found himself in that space because he had not yet come to understand Jesus very well. He may have misinterpreted Jesus. And I think many of us make a similar misinterpretation of him. I don't know if this will speak to you, but I feel like I need to say it. Jesus, throughout his ministry, we've been watching this happen in Mark, he seems to disagree with the Jewish authorities a lot. He seems to ask his disciples to put their trust in him rather than in their traditions, rather than in their leaders, maybe even rather than in their law. And so it seems to me reasonable that Peter would have come to think that loyalty to Jesus was more important than loyalty to anything else. But of course, I think that's a misreading of Jesus. Because Jesus in his life evidences that what he found in the word of God, he fully submitted to. We can see it here in these last hours of his life where he refuses to deviate from the prophecies that have come before him, even though one of those prophecies means he's going to have to suffer and die in a grotesque and terrible way. Now, it's true that Jesus was bringing a new covenant, and that is something we've wrestled with throughout this story. The first covenant that God made, the first agreement, the first legally binding contract that God made with humanity uh, in an official capacity was at Mount Sinai. And he came to the Israelite people and he made a covenant with them. And that covenant detailed how they expected him to live, how he expected they to, them to live, and how they could expect him to respond to the way they lived. We find that in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Jesus does, and I, I'm, I'm pretty confident about this, he recognizes that the Jewish people broke that covenant over and over and over again. And by the time he came on the scene, that covenant was irredeemable. It had been broken so many times it had become worthless. And so Jesus has to establish a new agreement. And this time, not just with the people of Israel, but with all nations on earth. And that accounts for some of his disagreements. Not that he doesn't submit to the law of Moses, because he submits to it in his life, but because he recognizes that he needs to make a new agreement. And as the new Moses, Jesus is initiating this new covenant with God. And because he was authorized to do that, he could tell us what the details of, those cov of that covenant were to be. The requirements sometimes were different. Under the old covenant, if you had a rebellious child, you had to turn him over to the governing authorities and you had to be, participate with the whole community to stone that child to death. That's in the law of Moses. Jesus is brought to a similar moment with the woman who committed adultery and they all want to stone her there. And Jesus, Jesus proceeds differently. Not because he doesn't submit to the law of Moses, but because Jesus is enacting a new covenant. But some of those things made Peter assume that he needed to be loyal to Jesus and he could just let go of his loyalties to all the other stuff. Once we have Jesus, who needs an Old Testament? Once we have Jesus, who needs prophets? Once we have Jesus, who needs Moses? All I need is Jesus. It's just Jesus and me. But he misunderstood. Jesus lived in submission to God and to the teachings of God's prophets. And Peter had to learn that to follow Jesus and be loyal to him, he would have to do the same, even if it meant in this instance deserting the one he loved. And eventually Peter did learn that, refusing in the book of Acts even to replace Judas, who had clearly betrayed Jesus. The disciples said, should we replace Judas? And Peter won't even make a move until they've looked at the scriptures. 
You've read the story. He won't even make a move until he can find a scripture reference that justifies the decision to replace Judas. Peter learns the lesson that his cues have to come from the Word of God. That he is not free simply to follow Jesus the way he wants to. He has to do what Jesus did. He has to search the prophets. And he has to do the right thing. He learns that. He learns that, as we must, that loyalty to Jesus is loyalty to God and to His chosen ones. To return to the illustration with which we began, Brutus decided to betray Caesar because he was committed to a larger and, in his opinion, more important reality, the reality of republic and democracy. We, too, must be willing to make difficult choices that may hurt those we love and care for out of faithfulness to the prophets and apostles of God, what we call the writings of our Bible. So this becomes real in our lives. For us right now, Jennifer and I as parents, part of that, and some of you might have noticed this, our son is a football fanatic. And I don't know how it happened, because I, I like to watch football, I suppose, but I don't get that invested in it, and I certainly never like to play it. Um, but, but he loves it. He's a fanatic, and he wants nothing more than to play football. Nothing more than to play football. He asks all the time. And for us right now, part of our faithfulness to Jesus is telling my son that he cannot play football unless we can find a league that does not play on Sunday. You've been in those situations. You know what it's like. To see that little heart break. To f- be fearful that obedience to God in terms of Sabbath will drive him away from Jesus. You've, you've had those feelings, right? And those conversations. I know you've had your moments too in which your love for someone and your loyalty to God and His prophets and apostles are at odds with each other. In some cases you've chosen God. In some cases you've chosen love. You know that space. We need to learn from Peter. That there is no loyalty to Jesus that fails to be loyal to the ones He has chosen. And He has chosen the prophets and apostles to speak to us on His behalf. And that does mean that sometimes we'll have to do something that will make us look like someone we don't want to be. Do you understand? Peter did not want to look to be a deserter. He did not want to look like someone who ran from a fight. He did not want to look like someone when his best earthly friend, who he trusted, who had mentored him, who he had spent his life with, was going down. He did not want to be the one who looked like a chicken and ran. But if he had listened to the prophets, that's exactly what he would have done. He would have taken the personal hit. He would have been willing to look like a jerk in order to do the will of God. But Peter couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. He could not trust God with the consequences of obedience. I don't want to be that person. You see, it's so easy to follow Jesus when the picture of the person you're supposed to be is appealing to you. When Jesus says, I want you to be this kind of a person, and it's exactly the kind of person you always wanted to be. I want you to be generous and outgoing. I want you to be happy and shake people's hands. I want you to have money so you can give it away. And you say, yeah, I want to do that. And then he says, but you're going to have to call this a sin. And you, well, I don't know if I want to be that. You're going to have to desert me at certain times and look like you're a chicken. Ah, 
I don't know if I can do that. Now, of course, the cowards are going, this is great. I get to run away. That's authorized by Jesus. And those folks, they'll flock to Jesus, right? If he said, hey, when things get trouble, you just run. Those people go, that's exactly who I want to be. That's perfect. But people like Peter who are brave and who want to stand with someone, who want to fight for what's right, when they're told they have to desert, they do what Peter does. They reject the scriptures and they do what they want to do. And we've all done it. We've all done it for all the reasons that we do those things. But Jesus tries to show us, and I think this is what's happening to him in the Garden of Gethsemane on that night before he's crucified. He doesn't want to obey the prophets. He doesn't want to go to the cross. He wants to find another way. But Jesus shows us that the only way to the future that God has for us and for our families is by going through the cross if that's what's necessary. And we cannot be free. And we cannot be the people God wants us to be if we are trying to find a way to get there that doesn't cross through Calvary. You will have to bite the bullet and look the jerk. You will have to be willing to suffer. You will have to be willing to give up what's most important to you to do the will of God. And if you won't, you will never see what it feels like to be raised from the dead. I'm speaking metaphorically. But Jesus had to endure the cross to walk out of that tomb alive. And there was no other way. And so he did it. So what did it do to Jesus' reputation to be on that cross? I'll tell you. He was crucified as a criminal in the most embarrassing and humiliating way a person could ever be crucified. To any onlooker who didn't know him, it looked like he was a traitor to the Jewish people, a traitor to the Romans, a liar about God. That's how he looked. This is the Jesus who is God in the flesh, who needs people to understand that He loves them, who needs people to want to follow Him, who needs people to give them his, their lives so that He can set them free. Why would He allow Himself to be put in a situation where He looks like a charlatan? But He did it. Why? Because the prophets said He had to. Are you as submitted to the Scriptures as that? I'm not. I mean, my basketball story proves that. I'm going to say this. It's become a theme in our teaching in these recent weeks, and I hope that you'll remember it. We have to trust God with the consequences of our obedience. We have to trust God with the consequences of our obedience. Your or my fear of the consequences of obeying is not justification to reject the Word of God. If he said it, we can trust him. Do you believe he knows best? Or do you believe you know best? Do I believe I know best? Do we believe he really elected these people to tell us the truth about the world and about ourselves and about what God wants? Or do we believe we need to write new scriptures every generation? Are you working on the book of 1 Joshua? I hope you're not working on my book. That was what I would write, right? The book of 1 Joshua. I'll, I'll listen to the scriptures, but I'm writing the book that's going to guide my life. Some of it will come from scripture. Some of it will come from, you know, the eagles. And uh, some of it will come from the Beatles. And some of it will come from Kant. And some of it will come from Nietzsche. And some of it will come from Shakespeare. But a lot of it will be from the Bible. I'd say probably like, you know, 80%. 
And then once I get that book down, I know how to live. I know my compass. I know how to live my life. And then when I come across a passage that doesn't quite fit with me, and I read it in Scripture, you know what we're going to do. We're going to negotiate with God for a while, and if He doesn't bend, we're going to just, you know, not read that part again. We have to trust God with the consequences of our obedience. If you go halfway with God, only willing to follow Him so far, I really do believe that His existence will always feel a little iffy to you. That His truth will always feel a little false. That the doubts will speak louder than the trust. There's really no way to find the proof we need that Jesus is who He says He is without following Him with all of our hearts. I wish that there was a way, and I don't know how this can be done, for an atheist or an agnostic who struggles with the reality of God to kind of set those fears aside and for three or four years live as though Jesus was truthful in all that He had said. And I'd like to see what happens at the end of that journey. Because it's only in following Him that the disciples came to understand. Peter had no chance on this night because he didn't yet know what Jesus was going to do. He didn't yet understand what faithfulness to God looked like because Jesus had not yet gone all the way. Peter went as far as he could on this night in following Jesus. He had his loyalty in all the right places. He loved Jesus. But he didn't yet understand that even his love for Jesus was not justification for disobeying the prophets. That's a tough word, isn't it? That is a tough word. But in the end, I'm convinced that if we can trust God with the consequences of obeying Him, we will find the freedom He has promised us. Would you stand? I don't know where you are today, and I certainly uh, have not preached this out of some sort of an agenda. In fact, I was quite surprised this week as the scriptures began to pour out in front of me. And I find myself more in need of hearing the sermon than I, than I feel the need to preach it. But here it is anyway. But maybe the Lord is working with you. Maybe there are areas in your life, as there are in mine, in which you have all the right reasons for rebelling against the, the word that you know. Maybe your, your decisions, and it, it, you know, you've read the scriptures, you've read Matthew, you read those things, and you know that you're not living this way, but you kind of have really, really good reasons for not doing it. Maybe today is a day where you can just lay down all the reasons and submit yourself. I really do believe that that is the only way to find out if what Jesus has told us is true. Some of us have tasted enough of the truth to suspect that we probably should do this. But until we do it, I don't think we will ever know the fullness of what it is to follow Jesus. Peter failed on this night, but Jesus reinstated him. And Peter had lots of other opportunities. And the next time, he was willing to pay the price. Maybe this is your second opportunity, or your third, or your fourth. If you need to do that, I'm just going to pray this prayer for you and for me, because I need to pray it. You may feel the need to come to the altar. You may feel the need simply to stay where you are. But if this is you today, pray this with me, would you? Don't say it out loud in your heart, your own words, but I'm going to pray it, and I'm going to ask you to, to pray along. Heavenly Father, I have difficulty trusting you when the consequences I see in front of me are scary. 
or when I think that what I value most might be lost if I were to be obedient? Would you help me to trust you with the consequences of obeying you? Would you help me, Heavenly Father, to be a person who is willing to take the risk of following you with my whole heart? Would you take from me these things that I keep holding back out of fear of what it would mean to lose them? Would you take all of me? In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray for the rest of us, the rest of you. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this day for your word, for the example of Peter, for your grace and your mercy with him, and for your grace and your mercy with us. We have to believe that as you understood Peter's failure and you went to him and gave him opportunity to confess his love for you after he had denied you, that you will do the same for us. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to live out of the moment in which we find ourselves, in which our, our commitment to all the things you were committed to is not absolute. We love you, Jesus. We want to follow you, and we don't want to desert you. But our commitment to these other things is a little less. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to grow in our commitment and our trust, not only in you and the flesh, but in all those you have called to speak to us on your behalf. Heavenly Father, we ask for your strength and your help for eyes to see what's being said, for the courage to live it out. And we'll trust you with the consequences in Jesus' name. Amen.